0: Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I am honored to welcome back bestselling author, public speaker, and researcher, Stephen G. Post. Stephen is a rare blend of a scientist, professor of medical humanities, medical chaplain, and metaphysician. In today's episode, he talks to us about his new paper titled Stop, Look, and Listen, an innovative approach to teaching clinical kindness, respect, and empathy in medical education. We also discuss his Blue Angel Dream, the idea behind One Mind, what happened to kindness within our society, and will it ever really make a comeback? It is always such a pleasure to have Stephen on the show, and I am beyond grateful not only for his support, but for his friendship. Please enjoy this episode. Stephen, it's so great to see you again. This is your third time being on the podcast. And it's so funny that we scheduled to talk today because you've been on my mind a lot because of the fact that I have been seeing so much in the art world about Chagall. Uh-huh. And I know that we've talked about him because it seems like his journey and your journey have some parallels. And for listeners who maybe haven't listened to the first episode that you were on can you just recap your blue angel dream for everyone because i think that sets the tone for the rest of our conversation today
1: sure it's nice to see you mallory by the way i'm glad you're you're, you're doing well and you look very happy uh so that's wonderful uh yeah so when when i was a, a a kid uh 15 years old i went up to a prep school in the middle of new hampshire uh St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire. And I wasn't a hockey player, and I wasn't too good at too many things, but I used to study a lot of philosophy and uh, spiritual classics. Um, And I had a dream uh, in my 15th year um, that was really quite powerful and formative for me. I wasn't a big dreamer. uh sometimes I would dream, but it didn't mean much. But this one was kind of unique because it stayed with me. And I would, after I got up in the morning, go to the uh, the old chapel uh, and sit on the wooden pews and just kind of meditate on this dream. But uh, the dream was, was really quite amazing. So um, I would see a road uh, and a bridge-like road heading to the west. Uh, I just knew it was westerly, and uh, it was very, very cloudy. There was a thick mist, so I couldn't see more than a couple of feet in front of me. Um, And as I was walking, on my left, I heard a little scratchy noise, and I squinted. And there was the image of a youth, uh, maybe he was my age or a little older, with Stringy, dirty blonde hair, and he was about to jump off the side of this bridge, and uh, he saw me, and I saw him, and then uh, suddenly, all the all the fog and the cloud and the mist dissipated, and uh, I saw the face of uh, a a woman. Uh, it was uh, bluish and um, and she said to me in this very loving tone, "If you save him, you too shall live." And then, uh, she disappeared and uh and it was bright and 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 lucid and radiant. So I had no idea what that was about. And I would actually, so we had a class on on ancient history sacred studies with a great episcopal priest who knew uh, uh, all kinds of mystics around the country, uh, like Alan Watts, was a good friend of his, and I and 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 so I would talk about this story in my sacred studies class, and um, he he was really interested in, in adolescent spirituality, and this thing repeated itself five or six times over the course of about a year and a half. So uh, he was a Yale div school grad. He One day, took me uh, down from Concord, New Hampshire, to New Haven. And I gave a talk on my dream in this course for uh, people studying to be ministers um, at Yale Divinity School. And I talked about this and, and uh, he, he, you know, the professor's name was James Diddy's. He was really pretty famous. He, he, he said, so what does this mean to you? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but somehow or another, I think it means um, something. And I'm gonna figure out as I go, um, but in the meanwhile, you know, he, he said, uh, "Does it mean anything to you, you know, sort of philosophically?" And I said, "Yeah, because um, it, you know, it suggested that uh, maybe there's kind of one mind, and we're all much more connected than we realize, and and our minds are not just matter and cells and brain, but maybe mind is even more basic than matter, and and so there's this idea of the one mind or the universal mind, and." And it was very Emersonian, so we talked about that, and it was a beautiful thing. And they asked me if I did anything based on on the dream, and I said, "Well, I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, because it was out west, and no one applied out to those places from St. Paul's. It was all this East Coast sort of stuff." And um, um, and that's the you know that's the dream story. But then a couple of years later, I had an argument with my parents because Rod Wells, my Episcopal priest at St. Paul's got me a job tutoring in the Bronx. And I love tutoring. I did a lot. I'm still a tutor. I'm still a teacher, you know, teacher all my life. And uh, my mother and father said it was too dangerous. So we, we struggled for a couple of days. And and ultimately, my mom said, well, I'm not going to cover Swarthmore if you insist on this. And so I said, well, okay, maybe maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll stop thinking in these terms. But what can I do? And my dad Now that you're in New York, my dad was the president of W&J Sloan's, which was a big old uh, furniture store on Fifth Avenue. Uh, And uh, he said, you can work at Bill De Bono's lampshade factory because he knew all the manufacturers around New York. And I did spend two weeks working in Bill's lampshade factory. And after a couple of weeks of it, it was just too much for me, I was just basically cutting cardboard between two very, very, substantial uh, italian women it was all smoky and and sort of you know it was not my kind of world and i had siddhartha in my pocket you know and so so I, I drove out to west hampton beach where i had a bunch of friends uh one night and um uh, uh, about 11 or so I, I i said to them you know i i'm gonna go west be, you know partly because i'm tired of this fighting with my parents I'm tired of working in Bill DeBono's Lampshade Factory, which is not my thing. But also I had this dream and the dream pointed me to the West. So I took, my dad had a, had a, um, a gray Mercedes 190 that was secondhand and sometimes fell apart, you know, but it was nice. And I just drove it, a, a, you know, West on Long Island through Manhattan over the George Washington Bridge. And then there are these signs, some of them say 95 South, but there was no South in the dream. The others say Route 80 West. It goes all the way to San Francisco, it turns out. So I just went West and, you know, like five in the morning, um, I'm in front of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and I'm about to turn around because I think I'm going to maintain my reputation with my beloved family. So um, just as I was thinking that, the generator in this car just went completely off and and so there was no light no energy no engine and i managed to get off on the right hand shoulder and uh, what was i going to do i mean there were no cell phones there were no pay phones so i took my guitar my copy of siddhartha i also had a few other little articles of clothing with me and i took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and i wrote a notorious note to um, my uh, parents, in pencil on, on 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 just a piece of paper, and it said it became quite folkloric uh, with my brother and sister. By the way, it said to the Pennsylvania State Police, "Please return this car to Henry A. V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East." West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655. That was the phone number. And then I signed it from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. And then I was off on my way. And, and the whole, you know, the rest is my life because I, I really never turned back. But it worked out.
0: What I think is so interesting when you talk about, like, the mind is that, your life has been full of symbols or foreshadowings. And I feel like a lot of us have those, but we ignore them. You've always been so in tune because your dream almost set you up because a year or so later, you had that experience on the bridge saving someone. So it came full circle for you. And for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, listen to Stephen's first episode. He really goes into that. But I think that you've never lost sight of what does what your mind is telling you and believing that there is something bigger than just your brain. Can you yes. talk a little bit about how you do practice mindfulness, but then also what is kind of going on around you as well that plays into how in tune you are?
1: Well, that's so, you know, I, I mean, I've been a professor in medical schools for like almost forty years, you know, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Case Western, Stony Brook, and so forth. and And I love the neurosciences, but I've never been convinced that mind is derived from brain. And that's why I have so much interest in deeply forgetful people with dementia because I feel that they're still present underneath the lack of communicative ability. But I never think that they're gone or a husk, or a shell, or absent, And so what happened, well, at any rate, in that in that story on Route 80, I did get all the way out to San Francisco and my cousin, um, George Lamont, you've probably heard of Lamont Gloves, that was George, um, <clears throat> eventually. Uh, you know, so uh, he had an apartment in the Mission District on Chenery Street. He'd been in Vietnam for two tours of duty. He was a North Carolina Chapel Hill graduate, really thoughtful guy. And he he took care of me that summer, and I slept on his floor. And there was a Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple down on Market in Chenery, and we would chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which is again about this idea of an infinite mind, and that 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 our minds are a gift; they're not something derived from evolution so much as they are a gift, and 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 our our brains are a conduit for mind, but they're not the whole story. So. Um, I drew a really, really bad draft number. And uh, I'd already told the people at Swarthmore I wasn't going, but I had applied to read, as I told you, you know. So I called them on the phone. I said, you know, I need to go to college or I'm going to be over there doing stuff that I'm not really happy about. So they actually made a space for me. And uh, I met in front of the Buddhist temple early in the morning, about seven or so. And uh, uh, everybody said goodbye. They gave me a go home zone which is like, you know, a scroll. And uh, it's got all these symbols about the one mind and mind before matter and all that stuff. And, um, so I took the, I took the bus to Golden Gate Park and, and I walked across the park all the way across, which is a pretty big walk. And then I went up that, uh, entrance way on the, on the red, orange, uh, sidewalk. And, uh, it was so misty, it was, I, I, I literally couldn't see more than a foot or two in front of me. Um, and I, I I walked for about 10 minutes because it's a long bridge. And I got to the middle of that major span. And then I, I, I squinted to my left and I, and I thought I heard some sort of um, ruffling noise. And I vaguely made out the contours of a young guy uh, who was about to jump, and he had blonde hair. And I, I I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, in anger, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, I truly hope you're not planning to jump. And that's where our relationship began. But eventually, I told him, you know, I think I'm here for a reason. And this is where the idea of a universal mind comes in. I said, you know, two years ago, when I was in high school in New Hampshire, I had a dream of a guy who looked kind of like you. And he was about to jump off some kind of a road and bridge or whatever. And um, that's why I think I'm here. And that was 3000 miles away. And it was two years ago, you know, so it was sort of completely beyond time and place. And uh, and, and, and we began talking and, and eventually I said, you know, look, if you come on my side of the, of the, of the fence, uh, I'm going to give you this Cajon Zone, which I had in my backpack. And he said, what's a Cajon Zone? And I explained it to him. I said, it'll give you luck for the rest of your life. The Buddhists have things like that, you know. So he comes over, and I unscrolled it, and I explained it to him, and I said, this is yours, but you have to go to my cousin George's. I gave him a little note, Cousin George, 16 Chenery Street, and ask George to take care of you and tell him I sent you, and 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 George did that and it worked out pretty well. And Harry eventually went back to North Carolina. I don't know if he was drugged up that early morning or not, but but anyway, he's um I don't hear from him or connect with him, but he's he but he's alive and he got married and, and he actually married the girl I was which that's not in the book. But anyway. Um but as I walked down the bridge, now I'm heading north toward Portland, Oregon, because that's where Reed is. I thought, oh, my God, you know, and suddenly all the mist evaporated. It was like radiant, like it was the brightest sun I'd ever seen. And I thought, you know, my dream came true. And 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 that's where I, for, you know, from, from that point on, I never gave up on the idea of uh one mind and that we're much more interconnected than we realize. And we need to notice that in our lives. And we're more cherished then we understand. And so we can just slow down a little bit and take that in whatever your tradition might be. You know, that's the essence of spirituality.
0: Did you get that deja vu feeling? Sometimes I'll be in a place and I can't remember if I've dreamt this or I, but like, I know I've been here before the feeling, the smell, like who I'm around. It feels so familiar that you get that weird feeling. Did you get that on the bridge Cause your dream with the mist and the whole thing, did you feel like I've been here before?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, deja vu is a is a is is a part of these premonitions. And um, the thing is, so the, the 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 blue angel said, "If you save him, you too shall live." And I kind of understood the "you too shall live" because I just felt euphoric. I felt certain that. Um, even though my parents were mad at me you know that I was more cherished and I had discovered something. So I was up at Reed college, you know, that, uh, that winter. And um, I was in the coffee shop and this guy named Andy came pound, you know, pounding through the door. And he had a black uh, spike leather coat on. He was a motorcycle guy and he walked up to a bunch of us and he said, I have a brand new Harley Davidson shovel header who wants to go for a ride. Now it's, it's, nine at night and it's, it's raining out. It doesn't snow in Oregon, but it, but it, it gets wet and and icy and slippery. So um, I said, like a fool, you know, uh, I, I said, I'll go. So I went out and I jumped on this, on this motorcycle and he took off and he hit like, a you know, 120 miles an hour in a minute or two. And he went through every red light, every stop sign. Then he went out on the Pacific coast highway and he hit 180 going south toward uh, the California border. And I was screaming, I was crying. I thought I was dead. He was slip sliding, you know, and it was, I I just thought it was the end. And and he was just screaming out into the night air with the rain pounding down on his face. And he was oblivious to reality. So uh, amazingly, he did a U-turn, you know, across the midway and he drove me back and he dropped me off exactly exactly where he'd picked me up in front of the coffee house and staggering. I mean, I was wobbling and staggering. You know, I walked across this little bridge over a ravine to um, my dormitory. Um, and uh, just as I walked across the threshold, there was a payphone. You remember what those are a payphone on the wall and it rang. And I never picked up the payphone. I just, you know, no one could really get a hold of me, but I'd given my mother the number. And so now, mind you, it's um, so it's eleven o'clock in California and in Oregon, and it's two in the morning in New York. I picked up the phone. I said hello, and I felt kind of pushed toward the phone. And that was the funny thing. I didn't I didn't see anything, but I just felt kind of pushed toward it, and I, I I couldn't quite figure it out. But it was all it was interesting. So I picked it up. I said hello, and it was my mother, and my mother said, "Thank God you're alive," and she said, "I." I was asleep, and I woke up your dad, Henry, you know, um, uh, and 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 I was so frightened and I was sweating, and I had to call you. Are you okay?" And I said, "Mom, I I thought I was dead, but I got to tell you, you know, there's something going on here because you intuited that, and you're 3,000 miles away, And I said, there's a lot of mountains and things between the you know. and, and And then I said,, um, we're more connected than we know." And I think it's the power of love between a mother and a child that made this possible. So to some degree, I think sometimes our ability to make these magical moments come true, I think it depends on the power of love.
0: I think that that is such a good segment into what you've been working on a lot now is kindness. And even like that connection we have with people we love or care about, It all stems with like being kind to one another. And we're in such a polarized world. People will send me videos of talk shows or politicians who are just talking horribly about other people's life choices, decisions, whatever's going on. And I just think to myself, the golden rule, like treat others the way you want to be treated. All religions have that as the bedrock in their scripture or beliefs but it's just so intense recently with cancel culture and violence and, you know, especially coming out of 2020 and everything that happened. How can we become a kinder culture? Where did kindness go? You studied this and it just seems like since I've been growing up, I'm 32, almost 33. There is no compassion. There's no kindness. It's as much as I remember when I was younger.
1: That's a very powerful observation. And I I think um, uh, many people would agree with you. Uh, you know, I have a statement which I, I write about sometimes. It's better to be always kind than always right. That's really true. And um, sometimes, um, you know, I'll screw up a little bit with that, and I'll get a little bit too sure of myself, but... I always try to put kindness first and I think raising kind children is something we really need to concentrate on. How do you, it's one thing to produce a child. uh, It's not easy, you know, biologically and procreatively, but how do you raise a kind child? And um, I think we need to be a lot more intentional in terms of a practical solution, a lot more intentional about raising kind children. So, you know, some of the studies, the Institute's been responsible for funding and supporting um, families that volunteer together, together, you know, parents and kids, the outcome is that the kids tend to be kinder. The other thing is that it helps to have a sort of a, oh, I don't know, you know, a a statement of core values that, um, that you put in a very obvious part of the home, like it could be on the refrigerator in the kitchen, or it could be by the fireplace, but just, you know, six or seven values that everybody agrees with the kids and the adults. Kindness is number one in my book, you know, but also forgiveness, gratitude, and so forth. And, and so when something happens in relationships that is difficult to, to manage, you you know, that's your cultural center in the home, in the family. That's the cultural center, and so you you know you, you bring people together around that, and you discuss and work out these kinds of issues. Maybe someone was really rude to a friend, and you know whatever it might have been, uh, but you you you're able to um, to create around a common culture. And the thing about our society right now, you know, everybody's being pulled. They're screenagers. You know, they're being pulled into these very very violent, unkind. Images and those really shape the human soul, you know. And so we need to be able to control that pull, and we need to have a, you know, a counterpoint in terms of a family value system that is the basis of a culture. And it can be that that kind of thing can work even as a dinner conversation, although now you know, everybody worries about what we eat. There's got to be some concern too about how we eat because it's sort of grab and go. It's like fast food stuff. But instead of, you know, a moment of silence and mutual respect and an interest, a curiosity, a general curiosity about the well-being and the lives and experiences of your family, you know, you're just grabbing and going. And, and so we need to restore uh, the culture of the family and create kind children. And And the studies that 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 we've done, you know, including why good things happen to good people, how to live a you know healthier, happier, longer life through the simple act of giving, uh, I mean, they all show, and everybody agrees with this that when you live a kind life, it's not just giving and volunteering, but it's doing that with kindness, with the right heart, that you're going to get all kinds of byproduct benefits. Not that you're motivated by those things, uh, but but people do tend to be happier and healthier, and uh, more creative, they tend to find their callings in life. Because, you know, calling, you know, basically, whether you're reading Picasso or Shakespeare, the purpose of life is to find your gifts, find your talents, and to use them to contribute to the lives of others. So, you know, people find their callings, and they have deeper and more meaningful relationships. So uh, this idea that somehow... (laughs) Culture shock. We'd done a, a talk uh, or a paper on uh, widows and widowers and pointed out that they were doing better getting through grief and bereavement uh, if they could self-report that they were helping folks in the neighborhood or through their communities and so forth. And I was, and and so the Society of Widows and Widowers in New York gave a call, and, and they wanted me to give a talk at their annual meeting. So I went into this hotel on uh, 7th Avenue, and uh, it was big ballroom. And I was giving this talk and I was saying, you know, there's so many benefits just being to being kind and to being helpful to others. It just gets you through the rough patches. And there was a guy in the back of the room and he started raising his hands and flailing. And he said, I don't care what you say, buddy. I don't do nothing for nothing. And, uh, you know, people in New York are nice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making a generalization. But sometimes we're just sucked into this very negative myth that everything is transactional. And if you're if you're just kind, somehow you're being made a fool of. And so that's part of it. It's partly cultural. And it's how we raise our kids. Are we intentional about these things? It's all really important.
0: So I was raised in a Jewish household. And <laughs> on Friday nights, we did Shabbat dinner. We always did... Um, Sedaka. So we got allowance every week, but it was an expectation that a certain part of our allowance would go to Sedaka. And for those who don't know that it's like charity, you're giving to those less fortunate. And at the end of every month, we were able, my brother and I, it probably wasn't that much. might've been like $20 combined between the two of us. But our parents used to say, where should we donate this money? Or do you want to go give it to a homeless shelter or a women's shelter? And they raised us like that. Then The other thing was doing a mitzvah, Jewish religion. You're supposed to do one once a day, I believe. And it's been a while since I've been in synagogue, but the idea of doing a mitzvah, it's doing a good deed. And so now growing up, I we'll be out and do something. And someone's like, oh, that's so nice of you. I'm like, it's my mitzvah for the day. And they're like, what? I'm like, I try to do one good thing for someone else every day, whether that's opening the door, saying hello, just be like, hey, are you okay? Or if I'm getting coffee and there's a homeless individual, I'll always say, do you want some coffee or do you want to, what can I get you? It's the simple things that I do because I look at it as like, they're another human being. They never choose that aspect of life. People fall in hard times. You have to have empathy and it doesn't really cost you that much to be kind to people, which gets me back to how this conversation kind of started was I don't understand why people can't just be nice. It almost takes more energy to be rude to someone than just say, Hello, or thank you, or just smile versus the hatred that you feel lately in society.
1: Yeah, so that that's absolutely so true, and it's a mitzvah. You know, it can be a very small thing, but it can be done with a lot of kindness. You know, it's not the size of the action, but it's the kindness of the heart that really makes all the difference. And I think your parents raised you well, if I might observe. And these traditions do help us to keep an eye on that part of our lives and you know now just sociologically you know where is kindness well you know fewer and fewer people are brought up in those traditions i don't want to claim that these traditions are perfect oh no that they there... don't have problems that there aren't all kinds of things that get corrected over time uh but but still i think the core of these traditions i mean if you look at the ayurvedic scriptures and hinduism the core dharma or law of life is the golden rule and not the minimal version you know which is do not do unto others as you would not have it that's a good rule but it just means you can get home tonight and feel really good about yourself if you didn't kick some innocent person in the knee
0: yeah that's like the standard basic level that's like the beginner
1: the beginner stuff and 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 we need more of it, actually. Unfortunately, but uh, you know, the positive version "do unto others" says you know use your emotions, your your imagination, and ask yourself how can I contribute positively to the lives of the people around me. And if you move in that direction, you do very well. And it's not that you are banking on doing well; it's not transactional. But as a indirect side effect, you will stay out of the negative vortex. Because that see, see people are fighting you know, every day. It's so easy to get upset and dissed, and you see cruelty and you see what's going on. You have to really work hard not to react. And so there's this negative vortex, and and it's full of hostility and bitterness and rumination, and it just sucks you down into this crazy immoral universe. And um the best thing you can do, uh, you don't have to go to a mountaintop in Colorado and meditate for six months. Uh, the best thing you can do is just a small mitzvah, a small action of helping, because the emotions follow that. I mean, this is the, you know, the William James Lang theory of emotions. The emotions follow actions. That's why people say, um, even if you're not particularly happy, smile. Because that sort of musculature feeds back into your limbic system and all of that, so the simple act of helping it's very important. And 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 not that everybody is taking this like a duck to water. Actually, the studies are that about a third of people do. Like, like say, if you look at thirteen and fourteen year old teenagers, about a third of them just they just know this. They recognize it. It's the and they're 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 um, radiant in doing this uh, helping activity. That's the service-based learning. There's another third of the kids who, well, I know they'll do it, but they're kind of hesitant, a little bit recalcitrant. Uh, But then, you know, as a little time goes on and they have good role models, that's important, you know, then the light turns on and they realize they're, you know, that this is actually, this feels really good. And then there's another third, a final third, and they're more seriously recalcitrant, okay? And they may have a hard time finding this meaningful, but if you look at their lives over the, really from 1992 when this first was studied longitudinally, the, that, the, those first two thirds uh, tend to have less depression, less anxiety, they find life more fulfilling, they're identified by their peers as more caring and kind. And it's that final third, <clears throat> okay? And they get in all kinds of problems. I mean, they wind up, you know, needing a lot of counseling. Hopefully they, they marry someone who, who can be a, a source of kindness to them, and they can kind of make up for some deficits. But, um, and, and maybe some of them just have to go through some really difficult experiences in life before they kind of turn it around. But for sure, small actions of, of, of kindness are like a vitamin pill for the soul. And that's what we need, you know, We, 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 we and we need to figure out, um, I think many people are figuring it out. I mean, there are a lot of people like you, and, and I'm impressed by the medical students here at Stony Brook. I think so many of them are, actually, they're more generous and kind than I even remember them 30 years ago in Cleveland, you know, which is much more of a community. <clears throat> so I think there's hope on the horizon, but part of it is just, uh, we have to be very conscientious and intentional and language matters so much.
0: You recently wrote a paper with a bunch of other doctors. I don't want to not give them credit, but I'm not going to list them all Mm -hmm. off here, but it was called stop, look and listen An innovative approach Mm -hmm. to teaching clinical kindness, respect and empathy in medical education. Mm -hmm. Obviously doctors bedside manner, definitely it's imperative. You need to have it, especially when giving bad news, but besides just teaching this in medical education, don't you think that teaching kindness, respect, and empathy should be something that we start teaching kids in grade school and continue? What did this study really show? Can you also go into what the stop, look, and listen method looks like?
1: Yeah, well, you know, so the grade schools are important just on that point. And so one of the things our institute-funded uh we we funded some of the uh, uh early projects on meditation and compassion in grade school kids. And that's been really great. The schools like, for example, the Baltimore public school system now has that going on very widely. And the kids they just take 20 minutes at the beginning of the day and they just breathe deep, they decompress, um, they 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 they, they meditate a bit and then they'll they'll talk about some of their goals for the day in terms of sort of positive psychology And um, not only does the level of violence and uh anger go down as measured uh, in the classroom, but they also do better academically because there's something about being kind and wanting, like I said, you know, Picasso Shakespeare to you to begin to use your gifts to help others um, that sort of brings out the best, and you it makes you want to learn something so that you can actually do that, you know, in the future. And so the more we can do this in the schools, the better, you know, unfortunately, you know, this, this uh, Harvard uh, study showed that parents really care about raising kind children until like age 13 or so. And then it's like gung ho for college. It's all competition, you know, and, and so kindness kind of takes a back, a back seat. Um, and, and that's
0: which is kind of sad because I would think I remember being a 13 year old girl. Girls are horrible at that age. I think all kids are mean to each other at that mm-hmm. age uh, between the hormones and changes and just everything like that. Mm-hmm. That's when you almost need to force kindness more or remind mm-hmm. them that kindness yeah. matters more during that adolescent age period.
1: Yeah, and you got to be talking about it. You got so so we have a a, 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 there's a private school across the street here from Stony Brook. It's called the Stony Brook School. They have a um, a school motto that's written all over the gate. You know, as you come in, and it's called. It says um, character before career, I and like I think that's that's part of it because you know the the the, the kids are raised and and. Um, you know, they're, they're they're they've got to succeed. They've got to go. they have to go to an Ivy League school, which I tell people doesn't matter at all. I mean, it really doesn't. And and many people go to Ivy League schools, by the way, don't do much with their lives. I mean, they got into this school or that school and, that, and they kind of made it and they, you know, they can not worry about stuff anymore. So you're a lot better off to, I, I think, to go to, you know, a, a decent place and just find your passion. And then stick with it over the course of your life. But you know, so so we have to do a lot in the in the school cultures, and that includes medical schools. And so this is the stop, look, listen thing. So the system, the medical system, crushes the spirit of people who go into the healthcare professions. I mean, you, if you look at their in, in their essays when they're applying, you know, I I'm, I'm inspired to do this because I want to. Provide care and empathy and kindness, and I want to be there and and I want to elevate people's hearts and lives, and it's it's poetic. And, and then of course you know they they they've got a lot of basic science to learn, which is all important, but they actually get into the clinical settings, like in the third year of, of at least a medical school, <clears throat> and there's some pretty good studies showing that actually their empathy and kindness deteriorates you know why because they're, now they're you know i mean first of all they're under a lot of pressure they have to learn skill sets they're being evaluated all the time but it's more than that they um they're just rushing from point a to point b and so you know even if they're really uh affected by the death of a patient for example in the picu um they don't really have much time to even debrief about that just on to the next they do some debriefing now But um, so our our idea is stop, look, listen, which means that every time you have to structure it into the lives of these clinicians and these students, every time that they come to a new door, a new patient, stop just for 30 seconds and breathe, you know, breathe deep. And, you know, try to put your most recent experience on the shelf, and kind of clear yourself and then when you walk into the room knock of course but look observe a lot of people in today's healthcare systems you know they're reading computer printouts from machines 100 yards down the long hallway and that's how they're sort of figuring out their differential diagnosis and it doesn't work too well it's not unimportant but but they'll do better if they just observe and actually, there about half the medical schools in the country now have ardent observation courses. We have them here, so we 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 have literature showing students that if they'll just slow down and observe, say in a museum, um, an image of a person who is ill and bedridden, you know, and just have those kinds of conversations in front of a great piece of art. What do you observe? What do you think of this? And what are you missing? Um, people begin to refine their ability to observe and they realize how important it is um, because it, it is important and, and and then stop look and listen and so then just listen don't you know the average time before doctors interrupt a, a patient is actually 15 seconds so you know how are you doing how are you feeling okay right and 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 so it's a way of structuring and sociologically a kind of pattern of caring and connecting and it actually um, completely improves diagnostic accuracy so you know you hear about medical mistakes and you might read in the newspapers uh, about you know poor communication oh they they got the wrong kidney and put it in the wrong person or whatever you know that's like you know one percent of medical error most of it is what we call premature diagnostic closure. So you're not really there, you're not really looking at the patient or listening or palpating or connecting with them because you don't have time. And so what happens is, you know, people reach conclusions diagnostically that are wrong and they miss things. And so someone then the next morning will be dead of a pulmonary embolism uh, which I'm, I can tell you has happened because nobody took the time to even visit the room. So this is what we're we're struggling against.
0: So interesting that you talk about this. I just had on Dr. Javid, who is the owner of her MD, and she left Standard Hospital, like her job, pretty much as an OBGYN because she was so tired of the door knock appointments, fifteen minutes in and out talking to women and when you're going to see an obg if you're not if you're trying to get pregnant not getting pregnant menopause it takes a little while to talk about that to feel comfortable or vulnerable to open up and actually describe what's going on and that exact same thing happened to her mom her mom kept saying i feel like i'm having a heart attack they're like you're too young it's stress because of kids all the stuff she ended up surviving a widow maker all mm-hmm. her valves and like she was 45, but no one was listening to her and being an advocate for her. And it happens more for women than men. But yes. pretty much what you're describing right now is that idea of like listening versus just reading off a screen, typing in your notes. Okay, what's the fastest way to get in and out? Because you have six more people waiting for you and how medicines really changed. She started her own company that really focuses on women. Appointments mm-hmm. can be up to an hour if not more depending on oh. listening to them and doctors who work for her clinics are not burned out or tired or miserable
1: they're
0: because they're actually feeling like they're doing the job that they always wanted to do why did they go yeah, to med school wanted to
1: do.
0: was to help yeah. people versus just helping insurance companies so exactly. it's so Correct. interesting and- that you're talking about this
1: And and also, you know, so, so, you know, and how, how are patients appointments scheduled, right? So I think that that clinicians should have a lot more control over that. Some of the successful models I've seen, clinicians will schedule a lot of people in the, in the first three hours of the morning. But these are the people they know who don't actually want to spend a lot of time caring, connecting, and talking, and sharing, you know, they're, they're the people who just want to get in and out, they want to get their shot in the arm, Uh, they want to get their prescription, whatever it might be, so they want five minutes, so get them through the system in the morning, and, um, and then you, you know, there are other people in your practice who really uh, do need time, I mean, in fact, you know, they need that Therapy of conversation and building trust, and it you know it has to be something that they can connect with, and and so save them for say the second half of the afternoon, and give them an hour, even though you know your 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 higher ups, your insurers, and so forth, they're saying you know fifteen minutes per person, you know, out of respect for these clinicians who who go into so much debt now, by the way, you know and 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 it's not like they're making scads of money unless they're doing neurosurgery, Um, you know, giving them some control and tailoring their schedules is we're finding quite, quite helpful. And the burnout problem, look, if people feel meaning in what they're doing, the first the first indicator of burnout is loss of meaning. We all know that to be true, and, and and by the way, that's that's lawyers struggle with that too. I mean, the American Bar Association puts out literature uh, on on burnout, and it's it's just people feeling that they're going kind of going through the motions, and there's no there's no value, there's no connection, and 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 eventually that will wear you down, and it may even kill you.
0: And I think that goes back. It doesn't matter what industry you are in; you can definitely always feel burnout, and that's where leadership from top down needs to practice kindness and gratitude and show, hey, I see in what you're doing. I see the 80-hour weeks you're putting in or the 60-hour weeks. I see how you go above and beyond. I appreciate it. I'm grateful. Thank you. Those small, again, acts of kindness and recognition go so far when people see you feel seen. You feel like you're actually making an impact when people realize the time and dedication you're putting in, we all want to be seen and valued. And I think that's like the first step and it's so easy. That's what really bothers me.
1: And, you know, you were doing um, some online type job some while ago. And, you know, I think that uh, like my son was working um, for um, a finance company and living living in New Jersey and commuting across the Hudson River on the ferry. And he was making relationships and he was part of a community. And then when COVID hit, suddenly everything went online and he wasn't having those interactions. And it really affected him. It affected everybody. And you know, you even lose your sense of time and place. So I I I I I run a program. I, I don't have to be here, but I come in, I came in every day. During the the pandemic, um, and spent a lot of time with with consulting with families and doing all kinds of stuff, and just seeing my peers and even telling dad jokes in the hallways, stuff like that. Just because because you could see that people were um, struggling, and 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 so you have to have place for that. I mean, screens screens can do a certain amount, but they're not a replacement for real. Interaction and and we didn't evolve in a matrix. Now, to, to think about that paradigm, we weren't. Our minds did not evolve for us to thrive in a matrix. It's great. It's good to be able to communicate by email and to Zoom and so forth. But but uh, you know, Steve Jobs certainly knew that, and he wouldn't let his daughter go near a an Apple computer until it was college time.
0: It's interesting too because I read study that talked about how we as humans used to be like more pack animals. Families would live together multiple generations in the home. So, you know, your grandparents would be with you or maybe be down the street. People weren't really spreading out it it was really something more during the 19th century and the 20th century that people were really moving around, not being close to that, their center of family and love and everything like that. Then the pandemic happened and we were so isolated from everyone. Even if your family did live in the same city, you couldn't see them because of everything was going on. We are still not understanding what those ripple effects are from like the isolation and especially the younger generations when i remember going to kindergarten and you had play dates and you were doing activities and you were building those social bonds and now everything was through the screen well it's hard to pick up no. those emotional cues of how someone's feeling True. or their that mindfulness of what's going on what do you think that's going to have like lasting effects
1: oh moving forward? I, I... I think it's a serious problem. So my wife teaches in the first grade in the local school system. And throughout the pandemic, she went in every day and all the kids went into school every day. So there was a lot of variation around the country. But the people around Stony Brook, who is actually a family physician, friend of mine, who's also in charge of medical decisions in the school system. He wasn't convinced that uh, on a cost benefit analysis. keeping these kids home was going to be good for them even in the present let alone long term so they held they, they 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 went to school and and the results i think are impressive taking kids and locking them behind screens at a young age is is not a healthy thing and you know so much of what They need to learn in terms of being kind, getting back to the theme here, you know. So I I have a a buddy named Nick Duncan, who used to be the ambassador to France. And we were in a French restaurant, you know, about six years ago. And um, next to us was a three-generational table. You're talking about three generations, you know. There are a couple of little kids. They were like four or five years old. And they had uh, uh, um, iPads. And they had those kind of metal devices that hold them up. And then there was grandma and grandpa, and then there was mom and dad. And in that entire hour and a half, there wasn't a single word of communication between between the kids and their grandparents. And almost nothing with their parents. And so they were basically locked into this world. And whatever wisdom they were going to get, they were going to get it from the latest game. You know, whatever it is, dragons, whatever and um you know this is a this is a big problem so my friend who I actually went to went to st paul's with my friend leans over to me and he said is this the end of civilization question mark and that's always stuck in my mind because if you don't have that flow that intergenerational flow of wisdom and insight and if kids can't go to their grandparents for that instead they're going to you know whatever god awful they're, they're looking at it's um you know it's a real problem and i think that contributes a bit to what you're worrying about what we're all worrying about is the the the, the 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 loss of kind kindness but it's also important to have a little etiquette you know so it's you know so you know i you don't know this but my grandfather edwin post married emily who wrote et- etiquette books you know oh, and she was not she was not arrogant she
0: that
1: was, was your not, grandmother. Well, well, he, he eventually he divorced her and he married a beautiful Broadway chorus girl from Sheffield, England, who was my actual grandmother. But I knew okay. Emily. Oh, okay. And okay. Emily told me not to put peas on my fork with my thumb, for example. Not too many people can say that. Um, and she had a place in Edgartown and I would go visit at the Emily Post Institute. And it was kind of like a almost a blended family type thing in some ways. But you know, um uh She just believed that any kid to have a chance in life had to be able to to say, um, you know, hello, please, thank you, good morning, you're welcome. Just sort of the most simple, basic social graces. And you almost, I mean, in in Korea, they have boot camps, you know, to teach kids these simple things because they're so locked into uh, their screens and in japan too in japan you know they have Pachenko and they have all these things going on and 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 there's a kind of coldness just a lack of of spontaneity and affective presence in some of these kids and do they get over it well i I think they can but it's 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 got to be deliberate the other thing
0: with the screens i learned is kids watch other kids play on youtube which i'm just like that doesn't make sense to me. Why are you watching someone else play? Why don't you just play yourself? It's just, it's so interesting. And it really makes me worried because I remember growing up, I had a fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Grossman, one of my favorite teachers I've ever had. She started the day where we all had to stand up. We were clapping. She would walk around each desk every morning, shake our hands. We had to look her in the eye and say good morning and give like a good handshake. By the end of the year, everyone could do it. And you knew how moving forward to give a handshake, say hello to someone. And it was uncomfortable, but I think she did that to teach etiquette more or less. Now I have some friends who have kids or when I see kids, I'm always like, oh, hi. And they don't look at you. They're on their phones or their iPads or anything. And it's that basic yeah. human interaction and i'm just thinking yeah these kids aren't going to know how to have interpersonal relationships with one another
1: they're not going to be happy and they're living in the matrix i mean that's the that's the thing about the you know that great movie with you know keanu reeves and so forth i mean he asks uh one of the protagonists there how can you get people out of the matrix and the, the this is the african-american actor in there i can't remember his name he says, you you can't because they don't know they're in the matrix. And this is the, one of the things that's concerning is that, um, you know, what you grew up with, that sort of presence, um, people just don't know what it is. They haven't experienced it, you know. So it's very difficult. By the way, we, you know, we some of our students from Stony Brook go down to like New Orleans and different places in the spring break, and they'll do some volunteer work. And I once in a while ask them, "Okay, so what did you learn down there?" And you know, almost uniformly, they'll say, "You know what? People talk to each other." <laughs> I mean, in New York, you know, it's like such a constant rush from point A to point B. I call it the New York strut. No offense. I mean, New York's a lot of great people, but 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 culturally, um, you know, it's there's a there's a certain kind of stress in this environment because it's a hard place to live in. Even driving is tough, <laughs> you know, so, um, and the financial pressures are over the top. They go down to these other areas, and for the first time in their lives, they experience community. You know, they're doing some helping activities, but they also experience community. Maybe it's Habitat or whatever, but they come back, and, and they've, they've never seen it before. I mean, they're coming here from, you know, 25A in Queens, you know. And, 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 and they realize, you know, people can be nice to each other. People can be kind. And so that's, that's, that's important. Mr. Rogers, uh, you, you know, was from Pittsburgh and he was on my board for a while. I mean, he died in, in 2003, but he was a graduate of Pittsburgh theological seminary and he knew as did they, that, you know, his future was in, uh, in creating a, an environment of real kindness, a neighborhood, if you will. And, um, um, I used to drive from Cleveland because I was in Cleveland for 20 years, Cleveland to Pittsburgh, and we would sit and talk, and and he was an influence on me, and and he was just such a good role model of of kindness, you know, and and he, he was so reliable, and all the little things he did, just little teeny things like your mitzvahs with great kindness, his his sweaters, you know, those things he wore, they're in the Smithsonian. Thanks did a good job with that, by the way, and 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 so. You know we need those kinds of role models in the media but what people are getting now is completely off the charts as far as i'm concerned
0: i had no idea that you had a relationship with him i love mr rogers and i see certain things on instagram or social media that just shows how thoughtful he was For example, I read something that a little girl who was blind wrote in saying, you talk about your fish, but do you feed him? Because she never could see that he was feeding the fish. And then moving forward, every time he would say, I'm feeding my fish now so that she could feel included, that she felt heard when she wrote this letter to him. And that's not something that he needed to do, but to be mindful of that i just read that i thought it was so powerful and yeah. also for someone to say i'm proud of you you yeah. did a good job yep that reassurance that you're special kids today don't hear that right? and it's so important because i think if you feel good you'll act good
1: that's that's also true i mean you know his office uh, uh, you know there's a statue of him in downtown pittsburgh but you know his office was he didn't have any um, he had chairs, you know com- you know, fairly comfortable chairs. Uh, but he didn't have you know a desk in his office, you know because he just wanted to be able to connect with people. He didn't want anything between him and other people. and and the you know the story that's so amazing about him, you know he, so he, he 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 lived a lot in New York because that's where his studio was. But he was he always kept his residence in Pittsburgh. So he was in New York once and he he couldn't really ride the, the subway because people would recognize him. But one day it was raining so bad. And he, you know, he went out. This is actually in the movie. He went, he 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 so he ducked into a subway entrance and he got on the train thinking everybody would say, Mr. Rogers, but it was total silence. And everybody just, you know, he couldn't figure it out. And they went, you know one stop, two stop, three stops, and then the entire car erupted into the neighborhood song and And people like that, I mean, what kind of role models are we presenting our children? And I you know I'm not going to go into it because yeah, and obviously there are very good role models. I think my wife's a very good role model. they call her Miss Mitzi and uh she does all the artwork for the bulletin boards, and she's a kind of a artsy craftsy type person, and and they love her and they remember her and she goes shopping and people from 15 years ago, Miss Mitzi, you know, but uh, you gotta, you gotta be a good role model. and. I don't think we're aware of that, that we, you know, everybody in this medical school has to be a self-conscious role model. And you're a role model for your peers, you're a role model for your patients, you're a role model even for the senior attendings. You've got to be a role model. And if you're not a role model, honestly, you don't belong in in medicine.
0: It's crazy now when you think about who do kids look up to, because when you said role models, I'm like, everyone wants to be an influencer or this or that, or look at Instagram, people don't one realize how much work it takes behind the scenes to what people mostly post or what they want you to think, not reality. Oh. And so I worry that people constantly are feeling younger generations, like they're not good enough, that they're let down. They, they care more about the materialistic aspects of things when that is just a persona. That's not the real reality or really what that person does
1: yeah so you know one of my friends uh, is a professor of psychology at Columbia Teachers College. Her name is Lisa Miller. she wrote a best-selling book called The Spiritual Child. Yes it's very well reviewed and 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 I've I've been doing things there occasionally and you know what she'll tell you is that this stereotype of the kids is just not accurate. Actually, there um, are a, a, a great many children walking around with a profound sense of love for all people, 24-7, you know, um, and, and they're doing very creative things. So it's true, there's another side of human nature and and the wrong buttons get pushed. But I do think that there's, there's a lot of hope in, in the future, but it's so cultural. And it has to do with the way we organize our lives and their lives and what our intention is when we raise kids.
0: Absolutely. Stephen, I could talk to you for hours. Every time we connect, it's so interesting. You've lived such a fascinating life and all these people that have come in and out of your life as well, that you've had relationships with and influenced your work. It's so fascinating. I hope one day you write another memoir. (laughs) And really stories that you've learned from all the different people in your life that cultivated into the work you do every day. So thank you again so much for coming back on. And I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks in New York.
1: Yeah, Mallory, that's going to be great. And thank you for doing such a wonderful job as an interviewer. And clearly, you know, your heart is in the right place and it draws the best out of people.
0: Thank you.